Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Awareness to Action. In this episode, I'm joined by Jamika Ayomere, a certified peer recovery specialist and forensic peer support specialist with Northwestern Substance Use Disorder Peer Program. Jamika has lived experience with recovering from what she describes as debilitating mental illness and drug and alcohol addiction. Jamika's roles include work with individual community members and the intensive outpatient therapy groups of Northwestern's drug court program. Jamika also offers the peer perspective portion of Northwestern's crisis intervention training, sharing her story of recovery with the local law enforcement and clinicians who participate. In addition to her state certifications in peer recovery, Jamika is certified as a youth and adult mental health first aid instructor and a certified NAMI Connection support group facilitator. In this conversation, Jamika shares her story of recovery and reflects on the concept of finding purpose in pain. We talk about accepting help and resources, the role of hope in recovery, and what community members can do to support individuals living with mental illness or substance use disorder. Jamika's desire to share her story in a way that encourages healing and inspires hope is truly admirable. I'm so grateful for her openness and for the chance to sit down to talk with her. We recorded this episode amidst the pandemic, so Jamika is joining me via Zoom. All right, Jamika, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, Before we get into the questions that I want to ask you today, I'd love for our listeners to know about you and your story. Okay. Um, So, well, I'm married. I'm 39-year-old mom of four. I recently actually just celebrated my fifth birthday in recovery on Tuesday. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in a pretty rural area. I grew up playing outside, riding horses, going to bonfires and exploring in the woods. Um, I had two very loving and present parents. My parents were always around. They were always there. They worked, they provided for us and a little brother and sister. Uh, We always had everything that we needed and much of what we wanted as well. I was a cheerleader from middle school through high school and participated in track and field. So on the outside, my life appeared pretty typical, but behind closed doors, it was anything but. I experienced sexual abuse from a very young age, beginning at three years old, and it continued until I was 16. I didn't tell anyone for all of those years because I was scared and ashamed and So my parents knew that something was wrong with me because of how I was acting, but they didn't know what. I also experienced many symptoms of mental illness as a child, like I would have periods of mania and followed by periods of depression and suicidal and homicidal ideations. Um, But this was the early 90s. And so nobody was talking about mental illness. It wasn't a common topic. And especially 
mental illness in children. That was pretty taboo at that time. And so even though my mom knew something was wrong, she really had no clue what to do about it. There weren't, you know, instructions like now you can go and Google and find what to do if my child's exhibiting these symptoms, but there was nothing like that in the 90s. So, so she did take me to counseling when I was about 11 or 12, but I was still pretty much locked into like my secrecy about what was going on. And I just wasn't ready to reveal my trauma and talk about my feelings at that age. Um, also during this time, alcohol was something that was very common at family gatherings and picnics. And so unbeknownst to my parents and other adults that were at these picnics, I began sneaking drinks at basically every get together or party that my family had. And at the age of eight, I had basically discovered that alcohol provided a temporary escape from all of my uncomfortable feelings. And I latched onto that escape and I didn't let go of it for the next 25 years. I was a binge drinker by the age of 14, smoking marijuana regularly by the age of 16. And then when I was 16, I injured my back at work. And so my mom and dad took me to the doctor and the doctor prescribed me Vicodin. And that was the beginning of my addiction to narcotic pain pills. I would use them with my friends and even use them when I was by myself. I would resort to stealing pills if I didn't have money to buy them or didn't have someone that would give them to me. And then at 17, I started using ecstasy and cocaine. So by 18, I was a full-blown full addict. I was a drinking and smoking and using cocaine and popping pills regularly. I had my first child when I was 19, and then I had another three children. I had one every three years after I had the first one when I was 19. I continued my use on and off throughout most of their childhood, um, their early childhood, and there was a steady decline in my mental health over those years also. I had my first suicide attempt at the age of 17. I overdosed myself on sleeping pills that I stole from my aunt. And at the age of 22, I had my first serious suicide attempt. I was in the ICU for two days and then I spent the next couple of months in an intensive outpatient program. I went through many traumatic events in my 20s. Uh, I had many abusive relationships. I didn't really have a high sense of self-esteem because of the trauma that had happened to me when I was younger. Um, so I would get into abusive relationships and I would stay in them. And I went through two divorces. I went through a house fire where I lost everything. And I had to put my oldest child in residential placement um, because of his the severity of his own mental health issues and I could no longer keep him safe. So this was all very traumatic stuff happening to me during my middle and late 20s. And then at the age of 32, I had my last and most serious suicide attempt. I'd recently had a psych med change at that time, and I was continuing to smoke and drink daily, which, you know, we all know is never a good combination. And I purposely overdosed myself on 132 pills, which was all of the psych meds that I had in my house and a full bottle of Tylenol. I spent the next eight days in ICU, in a coma, and on life support. So once I woke up from that and I was medically cleared, I entered into the behavioral health wing of the hospital and I was there for about a week. And then after that, my life just kind of took 
a turn for the worse, if you can even imagine a worse. <laughs> After that, um, my kids were temporarily removed from my care. I lost my job. I ended up losing my housing. And so then I spent the next 18 months homeless and my mental health just completely went downhill from there. I began experiencing psychosis and very, very severe, severe depression. Um, and I was basically at a place, I'd gotten to a place where I was hardly functioning and I eventually lost custody of my kids to the foster care system. Uh, my other three children that were, had remained at home with me. My parents ended up getting them back into the family eventually, but at that point, this meant that they couldn't help care for me anymore. And because of the CPS stipulations, I ended up not being able to stay at their house at all anymore. Um, and so I was spending my days and nights, you know, wandering around the city of Winchester. Uh, I would sleep at friends' houses or in people's cars. I've even slept on park benches. And I had all of these issues, but I really loved my kids. And CPS was involved and I could not see them if I didn't stay clean. And so at that time I turned my addictive behavior to food instead of drugs and alcohol. And I ate my way up to almost 300 pounds in under a year. So on September 14th, 2015, I had a moment. Uh, some people call it an epiphany. People call it an aha moment. I personally attribute it to my belief in God and my faith. But on that day, I woke up feeling differently. Things began to click in my brain. And I made a decision on that day that I wasn't going to live like this anymore. And so literally on that day, um, my thinking and my action changed. It switched from what I had been previously doing. I had so many services that were being enforced at that time because CPS and the court system was involved. So I had outpatient therapy and an in-home worker. I had case management. I had intensive outpatient therapy at Northwestern Substance Use Disorder Program. I had a parent mentor. I had a mental health support worker. Uh, I had tons of services. <laughs> and so all of these services were being provided for me by the state. And up until this moment, I had not even began to take advantage of them. Um, and so from that day on, I stopped missing my appointments. Um, but not only that, I became like 110% engaged in my services. I started practicing what I was learning at my appointments and in my everyday life, I just started using all these skills that I was getting at my treatment. Um, I started practicing and using the skills and eventually they became habits. And the more that I continue with these habits, they have now become a part of who I am and a part of the way that I live. And so there wasn't any magical transformation. I had to work really, really hard and be very intentional about everything that I was doing to get to the point that I am now. Um, so I mentioned that I had eaten my way up to 300 pounds. On this day, I called a personal trainer and uh, my mom and I went shopping for healthier food for me. And I began to work out and I lost 115 pounds over the course of the next year. And this was really important because getting exercise and taking care of my body was a big step towards me getting healthy 
overall. Uh, I got a job and kept a job for the first time in a long time. And I was able to save up and get myself into the tiniest one bedroom apartment that I think exists in the city of Winchester, but it was my place and it was something that I did on my own. That was the first time I had ever lived on my own since I left my parents' house. And so that was a new experience and I was really proud and that built up my self-esteem some. Uh, and then I also, that was in March of 2016. And so also in that month, I weaned off the last of my psych meds. And so up, up until that time, I had been on nine different psych meds a day. I was taking 13 pills a day just to control my mental health symptoms and my substance use disorder symptoms. Um, and so under my doctor's care, I weaned off of all those medications. And then in June of 2016, I had my first date with my husband and we got married exactly two months later in August of 2016. And then six days after that, my son came home from residential placement after four years of being locked in facilities. So my whole family, my mom, my dad, some of my aunts, myself, my husband, and all four of my children received a service called intensive care coordination or high fidelity wraparound uh, through Winchester Community Mental Health. And so basically what this meant was that all of our providers, our therapists and so my kids therapists, my therapists, um, the case managers for all of us, my family support partners who are also peer specialists, the court system, uh, members of the court system, the school system, everybody came together and we had these meetings uh, where they worked with my family to find out what our goals were and help build us up to achieve them based on my family's strengths. So this was something completely new, um, something that we had none of us had ever experienced before. We'd all been in the system for a while at this point, and it was a whole new approach to treatment and to recovery that we didn't know existed. And so this coordination of community service providers was definitely one of the keys to the success my family has experienced. Then in July of 2018, I went to court and I regained custody of my other three children. And we began our journey back together as a family after four years of all being separated. And it was a lot of work and a lot of services for our family and a lot of prayer. <laughs> But, um, you know, here we are today, and my husband and I bought a house in 2019, and our family has been just growing together as individuals and as a whole family since uh, I took the peer specialist training in October of 2018 and began working for Northwestern as a peer in 2019, and I just really haven't looked back since. First of all, I want to thank you for sharing your story with myself and with everyone who's listening I think it's so powerful when we get to share stories and there's so much to learn from the people around us. So I'm grateful that you chose to share. Um, and I really want to focus on what you mentioned there at the end, that you're now a certified peer recovery specialist with Northwestern Services. So can you tell our listeners about what a peer recovery specialist is and what you do in your day to day? Sure. So a peer is a person who is in recovery from substance use disorder and or mental health issues. Um, we have the unique opportunity to be able to use our personal stories of recovery 
to support others in achieving their own recovery and basically to live recovery in front of them so they can see real life examples of what recovery looks like. We're trained by the state to share and support in the most effective ways, but really our degree in our field is actually our personal lived experience of recovery. We focus on supporting people and finding their own strengths and building upon those so that they can grow and we reach what they consider to be a fulfilling life and recovery from their substance use disorder or mental health issues. We provide support in many different ways, um, really depending on what the peer feels like they need. So we are, I like to say we're the bridge between the clinical world and the people that we work with because we have the experience of life on both sides, um, living in addiction or with mental health struggles and then living in recovery and being professionally trained to support people living with these issues and also working alongside clinicians. So we have a unique advantage of being able to identify with both sides and advocate for and support understanding and connection on either side. I always like to say that peer specialists are living proof that people can and do recover from addiction and mental health issues and go on to live happy, healthy, and productive lives. A typical day for me involves meeting individually with peers and also co-facilitating intensive outpatient therapy groups along with a therapist. I spend a lot of time advocating for the peers that I work with to receive the services that they feel will be most supportive to them um, or just receive any support that they feel that they need. I connect them to different services within the community. Sometimes we work specifically on building the skills that the peer has identified that they need to work on, such as problem solving or effective communication. Um, and we do that through you know, role plays or talking about it. Um, a lot of times I share my personal experience and being able to um, use those skills in my life along with maintaining my recovery. And sometimes I'm just a listening ear. I also work hard to foster a positive working relationship with the clinicians that I work with in my agency and outside. Um, my goal is for the clinicians to see the potential of self-defined recovery within me so that they can see that same potential in each person that they work with and so that they can approach each person um, with more open-minded perspective of what you know, what this person needs and that they are capable of deciding what they need. So basically you fill a ton of important, amazing roles and are an amazing support. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Pretty um, much. <laughs> you, you just touched on so many things that I find so important, particularly the pieces of advocating and fostering relationships. Um, I love that you touched on those because that is how healing happens. And that's how growth occurs when we have people who are advocating and are fostering those connections. So um, I love that. And if, if the name of this podcast doesn't convey it adequately, we feel really inspired by people who use their awareness to make a difference in their community. So um, you've shared a little bit about how your experience allows you to fill this role, but I'm I'm wondering if you can speak to what it means to you to be able to use your experiences to offer compassion and care to others who are walking a similar path. Definitely. So I always say that this work and everything that I do 
gives purpose to all of my pain. So you know that, you know, as you're living through hard times and trauma, it kind of feels like, what is the point of all this? Why am I going through this? It really just doesn't make sense. Like when these bad things are happening in your life or, you know, your choices lead you to a place where you're out of control. Um, it just doesn't make sense. So, you know, you're spending a lot of time hurting and angry or maybe confused. And so when I had my epiphany, that's when things started to make sense for me. But when I got my son and then my other kids back is when it really began to click that the purpose that I could find in all this was the ability that it gave me to connect with people who have gone through trauma also. My children all experienced trauma and all have been diagnosed at some point with something mental health related. And because of my own experiences, I was able to relate with them during our transition back to family life in a way that I wouldn't have been able to had I not had my own experiences of trauma. And then uh, I was able to talk with them about my experiences and what helped me to get better. And they were able to see me living in recovery and to see me living with changed behavior. And so little did I know that these things that I was experiencing with my kids would be experiences and skills that I could actually use in a career, supporting people to find their own pathway to recovery. So now it makes sense to me why I went through these things. And I believe that every single experience that I have had has molded me into the person that I needed to be, to be able to make a true difference in my life, my family's life, in my community, and even in the world. In this podcast, we've talked a lot about awareness to action, starting with learning about a particular experience or issue, but uh, we don't always focus on the awareness that comes from a lived experience and how that can be utilized to, to truly touch the lives of others. Um, and so I, I just appreciate what you're saying about finding a purpose in it and making that purpose count and filling all those roles that we talked about. Um, and in a similar vein to that, you have been both on the receiving end and the giving end of services in the community. Can you speak to the importance of embracing help in recovery and in general? Yes, most definitely. So I refused to embrace help for a long time. When my mom took me to counseling as a young girl and as a teenager, I was still stuck in the shame of my trauma and of feeling like I was different and something was wrong with me. So I wouldn't talk. And then when I became an adult, I was scared to face what I was struggling with, let alone to have somebody else know about my real issues and then pick them apart and try to fix me. And so even when things were falling apart, I fought to keep the secrets rather than to get help and put things back together. So it wasn't until I made the decision that I wanted to change that I really began to embrace the help that was being offered to me. When I did that, I also made the decision that I was going to be completely transparent. Um, I always say you can't begin to fix a problem until you know that it exists. So I knew that I had a lot that I needed to deal with and I didn't know how to deal with it on my own. And that if I didn't get help, I was gonna continue to bring destruction into not just my own life, but my children's lives and everyone who loved me. So a big part of embracing the help for me was being completely open and honest about what was wrong so that we could work on it. And that is what really, really made, you know, a huge difference in my life and my family's lives is 
us really getting to the root of the issues and working on them. And in order to do that, we needed help. I love what you said about how you wanted to keep secrets rather than getting the help in that process of bringing all of that into the light. Sometimes what feels like dragging it into the light can be so painful and hard, but leads to such growth and healing and hope, I would say. Definitely. So we know that recovery is not achieved in isolation. And I'd love for you to touch on the impact of building connections and fostering relationships like we talked about in an individual's pursuit of recovery and how community members can help to form those connections. Okay. So that's a big one. You know, the truth of the matter is that we all as humans need connection in order to be able to develop and grow in a healthy way. And I feel like this is especially true for people in recovery. It's really, really rare to find someone who is has achieved long-term recovery who did not have some kind of support along the way. I believe that as community members, one big thing that we can all do is to be trauma-informed. People in our society today are more likely to have experienced trauma than not. And so being trauma-informed helps us to recognize when someone is having behavior or reactions that could be related to trauma and can help make sure that we don't re-traumatize someone when we're trying to support them. I feel like this helps build more trusting relationships, especially in the healthcare and school systems. And so part of being trauma-informed is just being aware of um, you know, aware of ourselves, aware of our surroundings, aware, aware of what people need that we're working with. Um, also being aware of the services that are available in the community can be very helpful for just community members, even if they're not using those services. If you come across someone who is looking for help, um, being aware of the services that are available in your community could be a life changer for that person. And so just learning ways that we can best support someone who is pursuing recovery. Feels like it could be really powerful if we all took some time to, to know what's being offered in the community, because I think probably all of us, even those of us who are, are already aware of resources would be surprised by how many options there are for assistance and care and support. Um, so you're making me think of how incredible it would be if we all had like a little, a little imaginary list in our back pockets. Um, I'm wondering if you have, obviously people are listening from different communities and are accessing different resources than you might access or, or recommend someone else access. Um, I'm wondering if there are some general empathy building resources that you tend to recommend to people who are wanting to learn about trauma or mental health, substance use, recovery? Yeah, so in particular, one that I definitely tend to recommend to people um, is a training by Mental Health America called Mental Health First Aid. And it teaches, it teaches you how to identify and understand and respond to signs of mental illness and substance use disorders. Um, and it's, a, it's an eight hour course. And it introduces people to the risk factors and warning signs of mental health concerns and substance use disorder and helps to uh, build understanding of the impact and 
just talk about um, different treatments that people can receive that can help. And they do, we do like role playing and simulations to get a better understanding and try to connect more with the issues. Um, it talks about, you know, assessing if there's a crisis going on and different interventions that you can try. Um, and just to provide that initial support until people who are qualified to provide the actual support that the person needs can get there. And so I feel like that's a really good one. And it truly is a first aid experience. It's similar to those who aren't familiar to something like CPR, where you're not being trained to be the the true medical provider who's attending to a situation. You're you're really the connecting point between an immediate crisis and more long-term care. So definitely. It's a great resource. We'll link information about mental health first aid in the podcast notes for anyone who's listening and is interested in that. Awesome. Jamika, tell me about the work that you are continuing to do in your own recovery, because I think sometimes we have a false impression of everything ending with a nicely tied bow after services are received, you know, you and your family finishing those wraparound services and then moving right along. But there's a real maintenance factor at play. Yes, most definitely there is. And so, you know, at the beginning of my recovery, I had so many supports and services going on. And of course, as I got stronger in my recovery and stronger in using my coping skills, um, I was able to transition to what we call natural supports. So right now I have, you know, family members who I've identified in my safety plan. Um, and we do have, we have safety plans at my house. So, you know, everybody knows um, what different triggers everybody has. And this is what helps me if this happens and things like that. And so I've identified these family members in my safety plan. They know my story, they're trauma informed, and I can check in with them or reach out to them if anything is going on. Um, I also have a mentor who I connect with on a weekly basis. I definitely still practice and use all of the skills that I learned and implemented during my treatment. Um, and I learn new ones. I participate uh, as the peer in the IOPs for the substance use disorder program that I work, uh, work in through the agency. But even while I'm in these therapy sessions, these intensive outpatient therapy sessions, I'm still learning from the people that I'm working with, from the clinicians that I'm working with, from the peers who are also working on their recovery. We learn things from each other. And, you know, that's a big part of peer support is that um, we, we get to learn things from each other. It's not just a one-way street. I'm not their helper. We're all growing together. And so, you know, that is a very supportive atmosphere to be in. Um, my family plan, my family has a plan for if there is ever a crisis that arises and everybody knows, you know, what to do, what their part is if we ever have a crisis. Um, we've all talked about it. Uh, I'm very active in my church and many of the people who I attend church with are in recovery also. And so I have a strong recovery support network there as well. Um, also, you know, working as a peer, 
I'm surrounded by coworkers who are also in recovery. And so we're all very supportive of each other. It's really like a family there. Um, we check in with each other. If my, my agency is very supportive. So, you know, if I'm having a moment, I can tell my uh, supervisor that I'm having a moment and, you know, he'll help me uh, talk through it or find services if I needed to or whatever, you know, we'll figure it out. Um, and so when it all comes down to it, if there ever comes a time where I feel like I'm struggling and need help, I would not hesitate to seek help for myself. I would not hesitate to get back on medications if I needed to, or go back to therapy. Um, I'm open to all of that because really the important thing for me is not that, you know, I be just continuously coping like a champion and everything's great. I want to be healthy. I want to stay healthy. I want to be mentally healthy and I want to be able to be present. And if I need more support than I have now to do that, I'll look for it. And what I'm hearing and what you're saying is this idea that you can't really go back. Like when the progress that you've made is your progress. And there might be services that I've concluded and end up returning to, but that's not, there's nothing lost there. And I think that's a really important perspective shift. I think we can be kind of hard on ourselves of, well, I finished with this and I don't need it anymore. So I can never go back. And that's it for me when that's not a very grace-filled way to approach services and mental health. Definitely. In everything you have shared in this conversation, I hear themes of an openness to learning and a willingness and a desire to share with your community and those around you in a way that's meaningful and contributes to healing. And I know that another key theme in your approach to work and to life really is hope. So I'd love for you to share what hope means to you in your work and in your recovery. Oh, yes. So hope is so, so important to me. It's, you know, why I do what I do, why I work so hard to my, maintain my recovery and to connect with people and to connect people in the community is because I want people to look at me in my life and see hope for a future for themselves, for their spouse, their child, their friend, their community member who is stuck in addiction or struggling with mental health. I couldn't have come this far without that same hope that I'm working to give everyone else. You know, I feel like hope is essential, an essential first step in the recovery process, because if there's no hope, then there's nothing to look forward to. After living my life and knowing where I have been and what I've been through, you know, I was once one of those people who would have been considered a lost cause. I was an addict. I was a deadbeat mother. I was a mentally ill person who just really couldn't get themselves together. And I, with the support of my community and through my faith and through my resilience, I was able to pull myself together and I was able to build my life back together, um, even into something even better than I did, than I had before, before all of this kind of imploded. And so I feel like if I was able to do that, so can anyone else. So from my perspective, there are no lost causes and that is the hope for me now. 
That is a message I would like to broadcast to the whole world. <laughs> no lost causes. Yes. I think hope plays a really key role for anybody who's desiring to make a difference and to, you know, we keep talking about awareness to action, but for anybody who's wanting to take their awareness, whether it's learned from lived experience or from a textbook, if they're desiring to take that awareness into the community and into relationships with other people, it's not really going to work without hope. Yeah. It has to start from a place of hope. Absolutely. Where it all begins. So I have one last closing question that we ask all of our guests and that is, what does the process of awareness to action mean to you? Like I said before, you know, I believe you can't begin to fix a problem until you know that it exists. And that's what awareness to action represents to me. It's about identifying the issues that are affecting us, our communities, people that we work with, people that we're living with, as far as mental health and substance use go, and then identifying ways that we can all act to support change and transition to healthy lives for those people who are living with those issues. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being here. I, again, am so grateful that you have shared your story with us and have shared the ways that you have applied your lived experience to the work you're doing in your family and your workplace and your community. It's all really beautiful. Thank you so, so much for having me. This was fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I've linked the resources that Jamika mentioned in the show notes. As always, make sure to subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can be the first to hear from the fantastic guests that we have lined up for the rest of this season. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.